I'm excited to be joined today by Dr. Daniel Quintana. He's an associate professor of psychology at the University of Oslo, where he leads a lab focused on the biological systems that link psychological and social factors to health, with a focus on the neuroendocrine system of oxytocin and the autonomic nervous system. His lab uses various approaches, including neuroimaging, genetics, hormonal, and physiological measures. Daniel, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Great to be here. So I did an episode a while ago with Sue Carter, one of the world's oxytocin experts. And one of the things we talked about is that even though this system is very well studied, we don't really understand how it interacts with sex hormones and puberty and brain development focusing on sex hormones is a major aspect of my research. And we know that there are some sex differences in the way the oxytocin system works in the brain. And presumably that has something to do with sex hormones, but at least from my perspective, I didn't know of any clear answers there. And you just released this, a preprint at least, of a great paper reviewing interactions between the oxytocin system and other sex hormones. And yeah, it would, it would be great to get a, a brief overview of this paper from you. Yeah, this was a, a preprint that was done. This was actually, it's a funny story behind it. I have always been very jealous of hearing stories of people doing these paper. It's a paper in a day where you get together with your lab or with some colleagues, you have a data set and you're going to sit down and you're going to go through and you're going to write a paper in a day. I think wow. with these particular things, I don't think in a lot of cases, they literally write the entire paper in a day, but they get together and they write a lot of it. And I've always been inspired by this. And I wanted to give this a shot with my lab and with my group, with one of my colleagues who is an expert on sex hormones. And I had this idea of doing this paper on the interaction between oxytocin and sex hormones. And this was done almost a year ago. So we joke in the lab that paper in a day has become paper in a year because it took us mm -hmm. almost a year to get everything together. But it was a really cool experience doing this with the group and doing this with my colleague, Claudia Bath. Now, for this particular paper, I was very interested in looking at this interaction between oxytocin and sex hormones as a way of better understanding the mixed results we find in the literature. Oxytocin is a really good example of a hormone or of a research area which has experienced a lot of hype. I remember back when I was in, it was, I was in late undergraduate psychology when I first heard about oxytocin and how a single spray of oxytocin can increase trusting behaviors. And I thought, this is incredible. This is so interesting. And since then, we've had a lot of excitement around oxytocin. And more recently, we've seen that a lot of these original studies, which have been investigating oxytocin's effect on behavior and cognition have not reliably replicated. A large part of my research over the past five, 10 years has been ways that we can improve precision of intranase oxytocin research, particularly in regards to behavior and cognition. And un better understanding this interaction with sex hormones seems to be a, a really interesting avenue to research. And it's very interesting in that oxytocin for a very long time was seen as a exclusively a female hormone. It's understandable given that its first discovery was around birth and around breastfeeding. And even up, to, up until the 70s and 80s, scientists recognized that males also had oxytocin circulating around. And the levels of oxytocin are roughly equivalent to what you would find in females, yet they had no idea what it actually did. 
And then all of a sudden, more recently, oxytocin or at least intranasal oxytocin studies have almost exclusively been performed in males. The majority of oxytocin research or oxytocin interventions are done in males. So we have a very poor understanding of what is of these sort of effects that we're finding in females. So I think by doing more of these investigations, we can get a better understanding of how the oxytocin system works by looking at the interaction with, with sex hormones. That's really surprising that given it was branded as a female sex hormone for so long, that the studies weren't exclusively females seeing the opposite problem. Yeah. But I, I think now there's a greater recognition of this and I'm seeing more and more studies which are including females in, in the population that have been tested. This is something we're doing within our group, but other groups are now beginning to do this as well, which I think is great to see. You talk a good amount of the history of this research in the paper. I'm going to also pull some outside knowledge into it. This might be like a folk history though, so please correct me if I'm wrong. All sure. right, so going back maybe 100 years ago, my knowledge of the first oxytocin research was really just focused on pregnancy and birth and oxytocin was thought of this hormone that facilitated the muscle contractions involved in birth and labor and breastfeeding. So no real focus on how it impacts the brain or psychology or behavior, just real focus on its actual physiological effects on muscle. Does that sound right first? Yeah. So about a hundred years ago, that was the main understanding and that was the main focus of research. Okay. And then Sue told me that when the oxytocin first came out as this love hormone and people started seeing its role in maternal care and in attachment, it wasn't originally thinking of looking into its role in maternal behavior. It started off looking at trying to understand the neurobiology of sex drive and people were doing various experiments, usually on rodents, doing different manipulations like castrating them or blocking different hormones or pumping different hormones and seeing for some strange reason you couldn't eliminate sex drive by blocking sex hormones or even by castration, at least in some rodents, they kept having sex. But if you did all of that, if you castrated them and blocked sex hormones and then finally blocked oxytocin, then sex drive disappeared. And that was a major clue in that oxytocin is doing something with sex drive or something with attachment. Yeah, it's definitely related. And I think with a lot of these things, it all these hormones play, they play a role that contribute towards sex drive or, or contribute towards birth, for instance. So oxytocin is well known for its role in birth, yet when you actually knock out the oxytocin system in rodents, they can still give birth. But the one thing they can't do, one thing that mammals can't do without the oxytocin system is breastfeed. That's one thing that oxytocin is absolutely necessary for. But these other things like birth, like sex drive, like other behaviors, yeah, you may see some differences in behavior, but these behaviors still continue without oxytocin because there are redundancies built in. I thought last year there was a big study looking at genetic oxytocin receptor knockouts. It might have been in prairie voles or some other rodents. And the big shocking finding was they actually could still breastfeed. And I think what happened is it was using something like CRISPR gene editing and they knocked out oxytocin like before birth so that it must have developed some redundant system rather than most of the time blocking oxytocin. It's like after birth, after the genetic receptors are all set up and the system is set up in a certain way. Yeah, I think that was, that was in prairie voles. Yeah. So I vaguely remember that. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So that, that might suggest then that it's not necessarily 
the hormone itself, if you block the hormone, once the system is developed in a certain way, then you definitely lose function. But if it's early enough, like if it's some sort of genetic manipulation, then breastfeeding might take a different hormonal route, but it's still possible. Yeah, there are definitely sensitive windows for oxytocin function. We know that, at least within humans, that um, of all the, the periods across the lifespan, the oxytocin receptor in humans is most highly expressed during early childhood. And what's really interesting here is that you see this most in males. And this is interesting because this is quite an important period for social learning. So the fact that we're actually seeing increased oxytocin receptor expression during this period, I think is, is quite revealing. There another piece way outside the scope of the paper, just from other reading and research, it has to do with sex drive, not in the reproductive sense, but as a social affiliative behavior. So bonobos, for example, they have lots of sex, no sexual selection whatsoever. So there's not as much sexual dimorphism as you see between primates, where in most primates, males are competing with each other for sex and males because of that evolutionary selection pressure are larger than females. In bonobos, males and females are pretty much the same size, but males have massive testicles compared to other primates because there's no sexual selection, but there's extreme sperm competition. And they'll even have same sex as a form of social bonding, which is pretty unique. So my thought was maybe this isn't like the lustful reproductive driven type of sex drive we normally think of as associated with sex hormones. Maybe it's something about the oxytocin system. It's lovey and cuddly. And then connecting that to the earlier research we were talking about, blocking different hormones and seeing that if you block sex hormones, sex drive can persist. If you block oxytocin, sex hormones can, or sex drive can persist. If you block both, then it's gone. And I interpreted this as maybe in mammals, we have something like two separate sex drives. We have the lustful reproductive driven one, and then we have something like lovey cuddly sex and you can imagine humans having both of those extremes of sex and does it make sense to consider them separate systems that operate somewhat independently yeah perhaps so i could see a space for both of these systems uh, working and being quite adaptive i think oxytocin certainly plays a role in this and the way that we bond with others but it certainly isn't exclusively a love hormone or a pro-social hormone. There's been a lot of work which has demonstrated that it also has these non-pro-social effects, such as experiencing pleasure at the misfortune of others, for instance, these sort of feelings there. So it's not necessarily always a positive thing, but it certainly does play a role when it comes to the bonding and relationships in that way. My understanding of those antisocial effects of oxytocin were that they're usually driven by vasopressin, which is a related hormone that's not talked about nearly as much. Another thing I've heard of, which is maybe like a historical mischaracterization, is that vasopressin is essentially the male analog to oxytocin, which was thought as the female hormone. So oxytocin promotes care in these more stereotypically feminine behaviors, and then vasopressin promotes like threat sensitivity and defensive aggression and the sort of paternal or maternal care that involves like defending your offspring from intruders rather than just caring for them in the active pro-social sense. There certainly is research to support that. Both these systems are very closely related from an evolutionary sense. The vasopressin 
or, or the ancestor of azopressin first emerged on the scene with oxytocin shortly after. And what's interesting, because they're so closely related, is that when there's higher concentrations of oxytocin, you often see a cross-reactivity with oxytocin and vasopressin receptors. So there's been a lot of interesting work done. Actually, there hasn't been that much work done. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. The funny thing about intranasal oxytocin research is that most research is done using particular dosage, 24 international units. And when you ask someone, why did you pick this dose? They're, just, they're likely to say that's because that's what the last group did. And no one can really trace mm -hmm. back as to why this particular dosage is done. And what is that a lot of people, because effects have been demonstrated with this particular dose, they will continue using this dosage. And there hasn't been that many studies which have looked at the effective dose or dose dependency. Work that we've done within our group actually did, did this comparison. We compared a lower dose, eight international units, against a more traditional 24 international units. And we also did an intravenous comparator. And what we, what we found was that a lower dose was actually more effective in uh, influencing social cognition and influencing brain activity and influencing the people response. And this has also been shown by another group over in, over in the UK as well. And what may be happening here is that a higher dose may be cross-reacting with vasopressin receptors. And it's a little bit simplistic, but uh, some people have conceptualized this as vasopressin almost having the opposite effects of oxytocin, there's, because there certainly has been links between um, maternal aggression, for instance, and the vasopressin system. But Vasopressin is hugely understudied, I think, which is a real shame. There's a lot of interesting things I think we can discover there. And oxytocin has almost taken, it's just all in the limelight, but I think vasopressin has a lot of interesting things there. But yeah, this cross-reactivity in vasopressin receptors of oxytocin could potentially be driving a lot of these effects that we see. One thing I really like about your paper is that you incorporate the evolutionary focus as well, the high-level theory even though you're talking about a lot of very technical research, neuroendocrine and genetic research on how oxytocin interacts with other hormones. And I'm wondering if a, the same evolutionary type of view could be applied to this vasopressin cross-reactivity. Like one way I've thought about it is that if oxytocin is truly just a care hormone and makes you interpret everything in almost a more positive light, like you're more likely to be kinder to strangers or act pro-socially across the board, if that happened with no sort of counterbalance from an evolutionary perspective, that could overshoot to the point that it's disadvantageous. Let's say your oxytocin is flowing and then you interpret a predator like a dangerous wolf as a cuddly dog and vasopressin, it's almost like when oxytocin gets too high, it kicks in just so the threat sensitivity can then be higher to compensate for interpreting everything almost through rose colored lenses. That could very well be. When you look at the anatomy as well, uh, oxytocin and vasopressin uh, are largely produced within the same nucleus in the hypothalamus. So I think within that nucleus, they only have vasopressin and oxytocin receptors. So there's certainly uh, a lot of anatomical evidence that these systems are very closely related and can work together. Um, but there's been work done. There's a fantastic paper by Inge Neumann from Regensburg in Germany, who discusses this very topic of the almost opposite effects of oxytocin and vas of oxytocin and vasopressin, and there certainly could be a, a, an evolutionary role here. Are you familiar with Jim Roney at UCSB? Yes, I know the name. Yeah, 
he does a good amount of research on sex hormones. I think mostly ovarian hormones, estrogen and progesterone and effects on female psychology and behavior. But he's got this nice framework of hormones as coordinators. So hormones are almost like fulfilling some broad, high level, evolutionarily adaptive purpose. And then the mechanism parallels that. And you see this, like something that starts off very physiological becomes abstracted into the psychological domain. So you see that with oxytocin, where if originally maybe it evolved in terms of basic things like regulating muscle contractions for birth and for breastfeeding, and later the same system becomes co-opted for care behavior, which is related. Or same thing with or with testosterone, where physiologically it's involved in producing sperm and reproductive development, but then later psychologically it becomes abstracted not only to motivate sex drive, but also other things indirectly related to sex, like status competition and aggression. I totally agree. I totally agree with that. We, a couple of years ago, we wrote this, uh, co-wrote this theory, the allostatic theory of oxytocin in that oxytocin primarily evolved in order to maintain stability in uncertain environments. And hormones or neuropeptides are perfect for this because there's a really good description of this from Gareth Lang who's one of the, one of the, another one of the pioneers in the oxytocin field who says that neurotransmitters are like whispered secrets, but hormones like oxytocin are like public announcements in that mm -hmm. when you actually want to change behavior, change cognition, change physiology, hormones are perfect because they're produced in one area of the body and they can be distributed all the way through both the body, both peripherally, but also within the brain. And oxytocin is perfect for this because it's produced almost exclusively, but not that there are some other places within the body, but almost exclusively within the hypothalamus. It's distributed peripherally by the pituitary gland into the bloodstream. So it can get to all the oxytocin receptors located all around the, the, the body's organs, but it can also be distributed centrally within the brain as well from the hypothalamus. And these two things can be done in a coordinated fashion. So if you want to actually influence behavior, influence cognition, hormones are perfect for this because you can have, you can orchestrate these changes all in one go, both in terms of physiology, but also in terms of behavior and cognition. It's just evolution has done a perfect job for this and hormones are, are perfectly suited. I've been trying to wrap my head around how hormones and neurotransmitters differ because sometimes it can be the exact same chemical and you just call it a hormone in one context, like outside of the brain in the body, and you call it a neurotransmitter when it's in the brain. How do you think about them as similar or different? Neurotransmitters traditionally work at the synapse and they're extremely quick, whereas hormones work a little bit slower. But at least when it comes to oxytocin and other hormones within the brain, they can diffuse all the way through the brain to reach whatever their targets are. That is what I see the main difference to be. They're both very useful and both solve very specific challenges. But I think this idea that a hormone can diffuse through the brain to affect its receptors means that it can, it can mediate certain types of behaviors and do the same to, to, to do sorts of things that neurotransmitters can't necessarily do. But neurotransmitters also have their advantages as well. I'm learning more and more that especially with hormones, everything interacts with everything else, which is exciting, but also really hard to wrap your head around. <laughs> yeah. And, and my research is on how the reward system develops during puberty. And there's a lot of good research linking that to testosterone. And it makes sense in this high level evolutionary way. If testosterone is motivating both sex drive and motivation more broadly, anything related to sex, so like 
monetary reward is usually how in humans you're measuring reward signal in the brains. People might play a gambling game in the fMRI scanner and when they win money, you look at brain response and that's pretty reliably linked to testosterone. And then experimental animal research shows us that testosterone can increase dopamine signaling rates or receptor density in reward regions of the brain. And then there's another paper I read recently linking all of this to oxytocin to explain pair bonding. So the idea, it was almost like an addiction model that oxytocin is tapping into the dopamine system as well. And something related to, this was all in prairie bulls, when you see or smell a mate, there's a learned reward association between their pheromones, I guess, triggering flow of oxytocin and then oxytocin somehow modulating dopamine release. So it's rewarding when they mate. And it's something like in prairie voles compared to other rodents, the oxytocin dopamine coupling is so strong that it forms a lifelong pair bond where in other rodents, it's more like you get this kind of short-term reward kick and it's fun, but it doesn't change your behavior lifelong. Yeah. So I think that's, we've learned a lot from the prairie vole and comparing the prairie vole with related species who are not socially monogamous. And when you look at the prairie vole and you look at where the oxytocin receptors are located, there's very high density in nucleons accumbens. But when you're actually looking at species like the meadow vole, which are very similar, yet not socially monogamous, you don't see these types of things. And a lot of this has, researchers suggested this points to, or this is the one, one of the main mechanisms behind the social monogamy that we see within prairie voles. So for this particular species, social monogamy solved a lot of environmental problems into the, oh, sorry, was able to tackle environmental challenges. And by having oxytocin receptors within the nucleus accumbens, this helped it become more rewarding. And even within humans, we've done work, which has looked at the location of oxytocin receptors and the oxy and, and, and other receptors within the brain. And we found across about 20,000 protein coding genes, one of the highest levels of co-expression between the oxytocin receptor was the dopamine D2 receptor in the brain. I thought there would be a strong relationship, but I was actually surprised how highly ranked this association between the location of oxytocin receptors were and the oxytocin and the location of dopamine D2 receptors within the brain, which speaks to its role within learning. And that has actually helped direct and a lot of the research that we're planning or that's upcoming is specifically looking at the role of oxytocin in learning based on this work that we've actually found these strong links between um, dopamine uh, receptor locations and oxytocin receptor locations within the human brain. This is where I've gotten confused in trying to understand the actual mechanism or the directionality of the effect. Because one way to interpret this is something like the reason um, that prairie voles are motivated to pair bond is because of oxytocin and and that induces this lovey feeling of its love its care its attachment and another way of looking at it would be oxytocin is just the thing that transmits what's really driving the effect which is the dopamine and you see this in some of your paper as well where you're reviewing links between oxytocin and other sex hormones that have been associated with various psychiatric illnesses so talking about anxiety and estradiol, for example. And there I saw pretty clear associations, but I wasn't sure, is it like, okay, estradiol has been shown to be related to anxiety, but actually oxytocin is associated too. So is oxytocin really driving the effect? 
Or is it the other way around? It's like if oxytocin has been implicated in something, but it's associated with a sex hormone, is that hormone really driving the effect? It's likely to be bi-directional, but if I was to pick a direction, I would actually say it's sex hormones which are driving these effects because sex hormones have been demonstrated to influence oxytocin release and also oxytocin receptor activity as well. So of the two, although, the, yeah, there is information going both ways, I would say there slightly is a greater influence of sex hormones. Uh -huh. So you can see that my brain just really wants to simplify things. So then when I hear <laughs> that, my question is, why did oxytocin evolve as a separate thing at all? If sex hormones are the first step in the process that are driving some effect, why couldn't they just directly do that? Why do you need a separate system to evolve later? If we look at the evolution of oxytocin, some fantastic work has been done by one of my doctoral students, uh, Alina Sartorius, and she looked at specifically, we do touch upon the evolution of the oxytocin system within our preprint, but she mm -hmm. has another paper, which is also available as a preprint and currently under review, fingers crossed it'll be accepted soon, where she took a deep dive into the evolution of the oxytocin system when it actually emerged and what are the implications of when it actually emerged. And based on her work, it seems that oxytocin originally evolved to facilitate muscle contraction and mm -hmm. movement. And then more, and then later on in its history, then it, it, it evolved the sort of behavioral and the cognitive aspects that we now see. So in this respect, it seems that it evolved independently for these particular functions. And then later on, there seemed to be some sort of advantage on it working closely with, with sex hormones. So obviously it does continue to play an important role in muscle contraction. For instance, when it comes to pregnancy and other particular functions such as gastrointestinal function and also within the heart and the cardiovascular system. But there seems to be somewhere along in our evolutionary history, there was, it was co-opted with, with sex hormones as well. So it is an interesting question as to why can't sex hormones do this by itself? But I think, yeah, it's not enough to think a lot about. Very good question, actually. I'm going to go and do more thinking about that. I really like the evolutionary approach because at first, I was thinking about oxytocin just as this mammalian hormone. And I don't know if I was thinking critically about how long ago it evolved, but I probably assumed it co-evolved with mammals. And in this section that you're just talking about, you show that it goes as far back, literally as vertebrates, like 500 million years ago. Yeah. So it first seems to have merged with these, these jawless fish. Basically, they look very similar to an eel, but without jaws. And that's where it seems to have evolved. And we see the ancestor of oxytocin. I mean, oxytocin is found in, in, in all mammals and we see it in most invertebrates and we see it in fish and we see a version of it in, in birds as well. It plays a really important role in, in birds when it comes to in some aspects of pair bonding and also flocking behavior and how they actually fly together and work as a flock. In lots of mollusks, there is a version of oxytocin in, in octopus, in fish, and yeah, we see it all over the animal kingdom, but not everywhere, but in a lot of, in a lot of spaces. Does it always work through smell or is that unique to mammals? It depends on the particular species or it depends on what their most important modality is, but smell plays an important role, especially within, within mammals. But yeah, it depends on the, the actual modality that dominates within that species. It makes me think of some of the reorganization of the brain that you're that you talk about during pregnancy and a related anecdote that these cravings that people experience during pregnancy, I guess the folk biology of it is that the cravings must be a signal 
from the baby, like it's craving certain nutrients. And if the mother eats this food, then she's going to get exactly what the baby wants at that moment. And it turns out that it's really just like a spandrel while the olfactory system is being rewired to do something related to receiving oxytocin signals from smelling the infant. Sometimes you just get these random misfires that manifest as a craving. Yeah, it's that that could definitely be. I haven't actually looked like looked closely into this, but I think what is interesting is that at least within pregnancy, oxytocin plays a role in terms of both providing the tools for building the bones of the baby and also do, when it comes to actually developing the fetus and developing the baby, it takes a lot of it takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of resources in developing bones and they literally steal bone from the mother. And mother's bones become a little bit more brittle over time because the baby is taking all the calcium. But during shortly after birth, then oxytocin plays a really important role in rebuilding bone within the mother. So it's not just about birthing the baby, but it's also about the period after birth as well in recovering bone structure because bones become a little bit weaker due to pre during pregnancy, but oxytocin helps this process of rebuilding bones. And that was something that was really eye-opening finding out that oxytocin is actually involved in bone remodeling and it's actually produced to a small degree within bone as well. I've never thought about where the bone comes in the fetus or I, I guess I assume that everything it creates, it was doing itself and it's only taking something more broad like energy from the mother that it needs to produce that. But it makes much more sense that it, if it can steal the exact thing it needs <laughs> that's already there in the mother that it can do that. Yeah, it's like it's along those lines. Yeah. All right. So. You talk about four different perspectives in the paper. We've already touched a bit on the evolutionary and then mechanism has been scattered throughout as well. Survival and development are two other main focuses. Survival is also related to the evolutionary focus we've been talking about. So let's talk about development. We were just on pregnancy. So I guess prenatally is a good place to start. Yeah. So one bit of research that we've done is looking at oxytocin receptor expression across the lifespan, which I briefly touched on before. We have, we access this fantastic data set, which looks at post-mortem brain tissue across the lifespan, both from the fetus up until about the age, 60, the, the age of 60. And this is where we looked at how the oxytocin receptor is expressed in the brain. And we found that there was increased expression within early childhood. But at the moment, there is not much research done in the older age groups in oxytocin. Most of the research has been done in young adults, in undergraduates, <laughs> to be honest. Mm -hmm. And there's been a little bit of work done in younger people, particularly uh, autistic youth or, or toddlers or young children as well. But not that much is known about how these things shift, how these things change across the lifespan which I think is important because the oxytocin system seems to shift across, its function changes across the lifespan, presumably in its interaction with different fluctuations in sex hormones. But this is something that we don't know that much about. But it seems that oxytocin supports the particular challenges that you find across the lifespan. Of course, with pregnancy, of course, with breastfeeding, but in terms of social learning, it seems to be very important during early childhood. And then its interaction with sex hormones during puberty seems to play a very important role there. But right now, we don't know that much. And there's a really important need to understand how these things function, both in males and females, but also across the lifespan as well, particularly in older people. Is that only older women when you're talking about menopause? Or is there reason to suspect that there's an oxytocin-specific role for older men? We, we don't know. 
Definitely, there is a role within within menopause, uh, particularly when it comes to the increased risks risks of osteoporosis, uh, which is associated with menopause. Um, but we simply don't really know what its role is for for for, for older males. Um, perhaps in reproduction, um, there, there there can be a role there too. But but we simply don't know. We do know that there are oxytocin concentrations at this older age group, but we don't actually we're not actually too sure what it actually does at this for this older age. I found it striking that. For females, pretty much across the whole lifespan, you show that the oxytocin curves and the estrogen curves look almost identical, either during development or across the menstrual cycle or across pregnancy. The main difference I noticed was just during breastfeeding, where oxytocin spikes and estradiol actually dips. Yeah, that was that's really interesting to see. And another thing, when we're actually putting this together and putting together that diagram, I'm like, wow, there's a really, really tight correspondence between the activity of these two systems other than with, with breastfeeding. Yeah, I think that gives us some important clues that we need to investigate a little bit more. What does this actually mean? Why is the system set up like that, that we actually see this, this, this pairing across the lifespan? When I think about estrogen and progesterone and their different behavioral effects, especially across the cycle, I think about it in relation to ovulation. So estrogen peaks just before ovulation, and it's also positively associated with sex drive across mammals. And progesterone is pretty low around ovulation, and then it spikes later, and progesterone is involved in food drive, so that could be something like the PMS cravings, and I'm sure that it probably has other physiological effects that actually have to do with menstruation. Is that a right way to think about it, that they're working on opposite sides of ovulation being this major shift in sexual to non-sexual behavior perhaps this is getting a little bit out of my field of expertise this is this is why i, I co-authored this with claudia who knows a lot more mm -hmm. about this but i think it is quite telling that we do see this this matchup particularly when it comes to the increased sex drive that we see during certain parts of the menstrual cycle so that's the part that i was a bit confused about because well if i'm thinking about oxytocin as a love hormone in terms of attachment to a sexual partner, then it makes sense that it would perfectly coincide with estrogen. But if you're thinking about oxytocin more in the maternal care sense, then I would think that it's more associated with progesterone, where you're not thinking about sex and you're thinking about how do I get food and resources to take care of my body? Yeah. So it shows how you can have, how this one hormone can have multiple roles and the multiple mm -hmm. roles can often happen simultaneously. So a lot of the way that this happens is with the, the frequency as to how oxytocin is actually released and produced. So oxytocin receptors throughout the body have, a different, have different sensitivities to different release, release schedules of oxytocin. So this is why you can have someone breastfeeding and you have these pulses of oxytocin, but at the same time you have the regulation of salt balance, for instance, because you have this sort of low-level release of oxytocin as well. So originally this idea that this release schedule helps modulate the different functions of oxytocin, I think is now complemented by its interaction with sex hormones. So I think the picture of how we're doing this is actually opening up a bit, but a lot of this is due to how oxytocin is actually released and the release patterns of oxytocin. And what about oxytocin and testosterone? Yeah, that's something that we don't know too much about. Again, we've, there's been a little bit of study looking at uh, female sex hormones, estrogen, progesterone, but 
with oxytocin, with, with testosterone, there's been a little bit of work done in fathers. So research has suggested that that with oxytocin, with the oxytocin increases that you do tend to see with, with fatherhood, this coincides with drops in testosterone, which might be driving this, this increased caring. So yeah, there, there's been some work done on that, but I don't think it's to be, I don't think it's conclusive. I think more work needs to be done. There's very few research groups which are actually looking at oxytocin and fatherhood. There's one group in the Netherlands that I know that are doing this. Most groups are looking at motherhood, but I think we need to take a closer look at what's happening within fatherhood. Another weird thing about testosterone effects on the brain is a lot of the time it's not acting directly on the androgen receptor. It's aromatized by an enzyme and turned into estrogen. And then it's the estrogen that drives the effect. And I wasn't sure which one of those processes might be happening here, if it's more androgen receptor specific or if it's working through estrogen, which is already known to have a, a more major role? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure what, what's happening with oxytocin, but that, that is a very good question, but I'm not too sure about that. And then you also talk about some of the prenatal critical periods. 2D40 ratio on your fingers is pretty reliably associated with prenatal testosterone exposure. It's, it's one of those things that almost sounds like phrenology when you're first hearing of it. It's like <laughs> yeah. you have a different finger length ratio and somehow it's going to predict like aggression or competitiveness or all these different things. And the common link between the two is actually higher testosterone exposure. It both has influences on the brain, which predict all these later life personality attributes and just by happenstance influences this digit ratio length mm. on your fingers. Yeah, so that's something that we touch on uh, in the paper as well. Uh, there's been a research, a, a, bit of, a bit of research done on that too. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think there's also work done on how this could potentially contribute to people have looked at the the testosterone environment within the womb using the digit ratio as a proxy for this and its associations with certain psychiatric conditions and diseases. So this is something that a few people looked at and they've made these links, but again. I'm not sure how conclusive these things are, but there's enough to actually suggest maybe there's something there. But I still think it, we're a little unsure about what these links are when it comes to testosterone within, within the womb while the fetus is developing. You mentioned autism earlier and that most of the developmental research on oxytocin in humans is focusing on autism. And you do find some differences, whether it's in the child itself or maybe in the mother's prenatal environment. And I'm wondering how that even came to be studied to begin with, because it, it sounds almost like there's something connecting the two. Oxytocin is known to be involved in social cognitive processes and, and autism is known to have impairments in those social cognitive processes. Do you know if it just started off with guesswork? Huh? I wonder if there's something connecting to it or is there a deeper theory behind how autism could specifically be developed? by some oxytocin changes? I think the, the original research came about because of oxytocin's hypothesized role in social behavior. Autistic folks can have difficulties with or experiencing, experience challenges rather in when it comes to social situations. And researchers have looked at ways that oxytocin can provide the individualized support for autistic folks. So a lot of that has come from this social social behavior hormone angle that and yeah so that's where a lot of the at least when it came i think the first study which has looked at a psychiatric or a psychiatric condition was done all the way back in 2003 with autistic folks and then 
other conditions followed. So that's more the history when it comes to oxytocin's role in social behavior. One of the prevailing theories, one of the most popular theories of oxytocin is that it operates like a social salience hormone in that it increases the salience of social cues. I partly agree with this. I think that's one of the roles that it plays, but I don't think that oxytocin is exclusively, and the evidence suggests that oxytocin is not exclusively a social hormone. Social stimuli is certainly, certainly important, and it's certainly important in terms of if you're thinking of an evolutionary perspective in terms of survival, but I don't think that oxytocin is exclusive to social factors, which is why the, all the social salience model is definitely a step forward from original conceptions that oxytocin was a pro-social hormone. It, at the moment, it, the evidence suggests that it is not exclusively a social hormone. So I think we need to think a little bit bigger. I was a couple of years ago, I touched upon the re reproducibility issues within oxytocin research. And a couple of years ago, there's a paper that came out, which suggested that a lot of the reproducibility crisis that we're experiencing was because of poor theory. When I first saw this paper, I saw the title, it was called a problem in theory. And I read the abstract and I'm like, no, there's no way. We just need to have good methodology. We need to have pre-registration. This is how we're going to fix the reproducibility crisis. But actually reading the paper, it was very eye-opening because it first suggested that a lot of the reasons that we don't have strong reproducibility within psychological sciences is because our, our theories aren't great. Our, we don't have overarching theories. That the closest thing we have to an overarching theory within human behavior is the theory of evolution. It's not perfect, but that's the closest thing that we have, which is what actually got me onto this road of better understanding the evolution of the oxytocin system, because it, it can help provide an overarching framework of understanding behavioral phenotypes and phenotypes related to cognition. So this yeah. So this idea that we needed better theory is what led me to th this idea that, yeah, it has to go, we have to go beyond this sort of, we need broader theories, which are not just applicable to certain aspects of behavior. I find it very hard to believe that a hormone has evolved just to focus particularly on social, social stimuli. It's got to be broader than that. You see a similar thing with testosterone, like people originally looked at the aggression findings as though it's just what it does. Testosterone promotes aggression. And then there's interesting research looking at it in different social and environmental contexts. Robert Sapolsky did some of this work looking at testosterone's effects on aggression in relation to social status. So if you pump a mid-ranking primate full of testosterone, it does indeed become more aggressive, but only towards lower-ranking primates. So it's some, And then he did later lab research showing that what it actually does is it increases the firing rate in signals coming from the amygdala, but it has no top-down influence about like new aggressive signals are going to be created. So something that it's, it seems to be more like it's magnifying what's already there, like it's socially responding. Yeah, that seems to make sense. And, and that's quite a lot of what is driving this social salience theory is that it's magnifying these social cues that are already there. So like I said, I agree with most aspects of the social salience theory, except I think it's, I think it's broader than that, but it seems to be very similar to, to, to what's happening with, with testosterone. Yeah. I, I struggle to understand most of the biological mechanisms, unless even, even in when there's a broader evolutionary theory, it starts to make more sense to me, but there are a bunch of different 
almost buzzwords when I'm reading them, when I'm reading hormones research. So you talk about absolute levels of the hormone. You also talk about receptor sensitivity or density or gene expression. And all of these things, even though they're far from interchangeable, without a strong bio background, I almost read as interchangeable about, okay, these are different ways that the hormone effects go up or down. Yeah. So concentrations is one thing a lot of people have looked at. So in addition to these oxytocin intervention studies where we administer ox oxytocin intranasally, the other main approach when it comes to this research is measuring oxytocin concentrations. This is not straightforward. It's not straightforward to measure any sort of hormone, but there are two main things. Or one of the main things with the measurement of oxytocin is that it's traditionally done either using plasma, blood plasma, or saliva, and occasionally urine, but it's usually blood or saliva. And quite often, either explicitly or implicitly, you're making inferences about what's happening within the brain. However, under basal conditions, there is no strong relationship or there is a very weak relationship between peripheral levels of oxytocin when you're either measuring it through saliva or blood and central levels of oxytocin. The only way to reliably measure central levels of oxytocin, at least in humans, is, a, is collecting cerebrospinal fluid. This is quite invasive. It's not like collecting, collecting peripheral blood. So this research has not been done very often, but the research that has done this and that has collected both peripheral levels of ox, peripheral concentrations of oxytocin and central levels of oxytocin have found there isn't a strong correspondence. Under some circumstances, there is. So after intranasal oxytocin, there is, there does seem to be a link between levels of oxytocin in the blood and central levels as well. But and central means in the brain. In the brain. Yeah. In the brain. Yeah. And this is something that you would traditionally measure with uh, cerebrospinal fluid. And yeah, and there's a lot of debate currently about the best ways to actually me measure oxytocin. A few critical articles that have come out, which I think have been really good. It's made the field look very carefully. Related to that, sometimes I have conversations with people and they're like, oh, isn't it a bit, yeah, aren't you a bit discouraged? There's a lot of negative studies coming out about oxytocin. I think, no, this is fantastic. This is a sign of a robust field. I, I, don't want, I don't want to be part of a field where everyone pretends everything is working well. I want to be part mm -hmm. of a field where you're actually asking important questions going, are the methods that we're using actually the, the, the best way to do these things? Are we actually reliably measuring oxytocin in these concentrations? Are we actually reliably delivering oxytocin to the brain using intranasal administration? It is so good to see this process. And I think it's just a great example of science at work when it comes to the field of oxytocin. You have this initial finding that oxytocin incre increases trusting behaviors that came out in 2005 been cited over 5,000 times. I actually checked today for, for an unrelated thing. And, and that's what got oxytocin on the map. But then what happened was um, uh, about three or four years ago, a registered report study came out, which replicated that exact same study using a much larger sample size, which had a much greater sensitivity to detect a wider range of effect sizes, whereas the original study only had the, the sort of sample size and design to detect very large sample sizes, which is probably unrealistic. And they did not, they did not replicate the original finding. But what was very interesting was they did actually find using explicit exploratory research that those folks that have a low dispositional level of trust of other people actually pound an effect. So these things don't work globally across everyone, but people that actually are, have a low disposition of trusting other people, oxytocin seems to increase trust. This makes sense. If you already have a high level of trust, when you have some sort of intervention that's meant to increase it, you have ceiling effects here. 
And so what we have now is this same group of researchers are now doing another registered report, specifically testing the hypothesis that oxytocin increases trust in people who have low dispositional trust. So you see science mm -hmm. at work here. You're seeing original study, replication doesn't work, exploratory research, new hypothesis, test that and so forth. I think it's great. I think there's, I think it's a very exciting time to be within oxytocin research because we're looking very carefully at the way that we're doing things and trying to improve the way that we do things. These genetic differences that I touched on earlier, do you think the reason that often it's hard to replicate findings isn't because, say, the theory is wrong that there's an association between oxytocin and whatever outcome you're looking at, but because, say, more oxytocin in one person, if they have like lower receptor density or something, could be less functional oxytocin, and it's just all that individual variability, the us salivary hormone levels don't actually predict how much is functional within the body? Yeah, there's definitely a genetic role. There's been a very big focus on polymorphisms or single nucleotide polymorphisms for the oxytocin receptor and to a lesser extent for the oxytocin gene itself. And what does that mean? Basically, it means that the oxytocin system is, uh, there's over a hundred genes which actually contribute to the functioning of the oxytocin system. One of these genes regulates the oxytocin receptor, which regulates its activity and also its density and where it's actually located within the brain and within the body. And one of these genes actually regulates the structural gene for oxytocin for how it's actually produced. Certain genetic variants have been suggested to be related to certain behavioral traits. So people have looked at this, they've done analyses of these particular variants for the oxytocin receptor gene. And they've reported differences when it comes to social behavior, for instance, or people with different variants have report greater difficulties in social situations, for instance. I'm not so convinced with this. Oxytocin is definitely influenced by a whole, by variants across a whole range of genes. It's not just about the oxytocin receptor. It's not just about the oxytocin gene itself. This is some work that we've done looking at this entire oxytocin signaling pathway, that it's going to be small variants across a whole number of genes rather than a single gene. I think this way of looking at variants within single genes, I think historically has been quite popular because the analyses to do a lot of genetic analyses historically were very expensive. So typically researchers would focus on variants within a single gene. But there was a paper that came out a couple of years ago, which actually looked at this and found that you need enormous sample sizes to actually reliably detect any differences for, the, for, for variation within a single gene, which is why, at least within psychiatry research, we're moving towards these polygenic explanations. So I think at last count, they've discovered at least 100 different genes which are associated with schizophrenia, for instance. So there is no schizophrenia gene, but it is variation, very small variants across a large number of genes. So... When it comes to oxytocin research, there historically has been a lot of work looking at these variants within the oxytocin receptor itself, but the sample sizes have been really small. And because of these small sample sizes, you can only reliably detect really tiny effect sizes. And I just don't think that's realistic. Daniel, we've been very theoretical for the last hour. I'd love to hear some of the ongoing projects in your lab. I know you mentioned intranasal manipulations and so these sort of active interventions what are some of the questions you're trying to answer currently so one of the main things we're interested in which i touched on briefly is oxytocin's role in learning so with some upcoming studies that we're doing we're looking at 
how oxytocin influences learning both in a social and a non-social context. I'm very interested in comparing these two things head to head. Do we actually find that it's only exclusive to, to social stimuli or to social aspects, or can we actually find these similar effects in, in, in non-social in non-social arenas? So this is one thing that we're looking at. We're also looking at the biological mechanisms of how oxytocin actually works. And one idea that's been floated in animal research or from evidence, due to evidence from animal research, is its effects on synaptic plasticity, how the synapses communicate with each other. This has been done in animals, and there is a way of actually looking at this using an EEG proxy of looking and measuring synaptic plasticity. So one of our upcoming studies, we're going to be looking at oxytocin's role in both learning in terms of computer-based tasks, but also whether any changes in learning actually correspond with any changes in synaptic plasticity. Importantly, for these upcoming trials, we're including both males and females, and we're also testing two different doses as well to actually see is there any differences, is a lower dose more effective than a more traditionally used dose. And uh, yeah, because I think it's very important to actually determine oxytocin's effect because determining the dose, it's, this is something I've touched on in a paper I wrote a couple of years ago in better understanding the auxiliary hypotheses behind oxytocin. That is the hypotheses which aren't your primary hypotheses, but support the hypotheses that you're testing. So when it comes to oxytocin research, you may be testing, does oxytocin influence learning? But a part of an auxiliary hypothesis there is that intranasal oxytocin actually elevates oxytocin levels within the brain. And Mm -hmm. we need to be able to address these auxiliary hypotheses because if we don't address them, if we find a non-significant result or a result which is not consistent with our hypotheses, we can easily go, we're not sure whether it gets to the brain in the first place. Is it because of the intranasal transport or is it because the actual, the actual, the, the primary hypothesis didn't work? We need to actually rule these things out. And I think when it comes to dosage, we need to make sure that the effects that we're seeing or not seeing are actually not, if we don't find an effect, that is not simply due that we're giving the wrong intranasal dosage. So by doing these dose-dependent studies, we can actually figure out and rule out that it's actually, it's not due to the dose, it's due to the oxytocin not working. Mm-hmm. Now, at least with sex hormones, I know that things tend to be more threshold-based than dose response. So for birth control, for example, when it was first developed in humans, I think the dosages of the estrogen and progesterone amounts they would give were like 10 times higher than they currently are. And gradually the dose went down and it turns out you can achieve the same effect just having like beyond bare minimum threshold. And I guess it's because originally the animal research, the manipulations they were doing were a lot greater than it turns out you need in humans. And I guess there's this principle of do no harm or minimal necessary intervention to get the effect you want. And presuming that if you manipulate progesterone levels beyond what's actually necessary to achieve the effect, that could have some side effects that we don't want. And then also with testosterone and sex drive, individual differences in testosterone, to my knowledge, don't produce really measurable differences in sex drive. But if you block testosterone completely, then sex drive plummets. And it seems like it's more once you're beyond some certain threshold to turn on sex drive, the individual variability within that range doesn't predict it much. That could very well be the case, which is why we're trying to figure out what is the lowest possible dose that we give where we still actually find effects. I think there's been maybe like 20, 30, 40 trials done. And there was a review paper that came out a couple of years ago, which concluded 
there is no consistent side effects with oxytocin. There has been some reports of what we can, in clinical trial world, we call these adverse events. It sounds very scary, but an adverse event might be my nose is a little bit itchy after the intranasal treatment. But essentially, there's been, at least these reports suggest there's no difference between oxytocin and placebo. And when we actually ask, one of the important things we ask after, after administration, we ask participants to guess, do you think you were given the oxytocin or placebo? And participants cannot guess beyond chance because you don't get, you don't get a feeling. I, I find it very huh. interesting that if you go on Amazon, you could buy so-called oxytocin. I doubt it's oxytocin at all, but a lot right. of people, they'll take it and they'll instantly go, wow. I can feel the oxytocin. You're not feeling anything. You're feeling the pain. This is the placebo effect. There's no strong, you don't get a feeling with this sort of thing, which is so, yeah. All that to say, it's still important to actually understand what the lowest effective dose is. And so we're actually looking at these, at these dose dependent effects. We're also, yeah, we're continuing our work looking at the evolution of the oxytocin system and potentially looking at different hormones of the hypothalamus as well, because these things are, are so closely related. And yeah, we're also, those are the main things that we're doing with oxytocin, continuing also looking at developmental aspects as well. For the intranasal administration, I'm thinking back to some of the earlier social psych studies showing that like babies look cuter once you're in the oxytocin group or you behave more pro-socially in economic games. Are those all the ones that generally failed to replicate or? The primary one has been the original economic game when it came to trusting behaviors. That has been the main one, but there has been other studies have looked at its effects on psychiatric conditions. Can it improve measures of social cognition? For instance, these things have been mixed. So an initial study would, would suggest, yes, this can improve measures of social cognition or this can improve particular outcomes, which are important for these conditions. And then later studies would indicate that this may not be the case. But I think the, at least the study that's had the most attention has been this, these economic games looking at trusting behaviors. Mm -hmm. Do you think there would be a subjective feeling of oxytocin if the dose is high enough, like feeling like things just look cuter and more friendly? <laughs> That warm, fuzzy feeling. <laughs> I, I, I honestly don't know. But again, if the dosage is too high, then you begin to get this, you're at risk of getting this, this cross-reactivity with vasopressin receptors. I, I certainly wouldn't recommend doing this, considering oxytocin's role in other factors such as water balance, for instance. So you, as soon as the, the dosages get too high, then yeah, I would, keep the, I would keep the dosages low, but definitely do not buy oxytocin that you find online because I'm convinced it is not oxytocin. Do not do uh -huh. that. <laughs> this is another, almost a mistranslation when you talk about oxytocin as the love hormone, not you in particular, just people. So you, people like to talk about oxytocin as this is the hormone that actually causes that subjective experience, that warm, fuzzy feeling of love. And then they point towards all the evidence and the evidence is usually behavioral studies looking at love related things. So like maternal care or sexual bonding, all these sorts of things. But then in actually explaining, does this hormone, does increasing it also increase that subjective feeling? And then it seems like the evidence is more lacking. So then there's a question of, is that first claim that it actually causes the subjective feeling is that just an over-interpretation of the behavioral studies? No, I, I think you're right there in that people are taking evidence from certain studies which aren't, which, which aren't directly measuring relations, relationships and love and, and equating that with love. So for instance, when it comes to how attracted you are with your partner, 
for instance, there's been some work that's been done which administered oxytocin to heterosexual males and they had an attractive female confederate come in and they found that those heterosexual males that were in a relationship with someone else who were given oxytocin actually stood a little bit further away to the attractive confederate compared to those given placebo. In, and it was interpreted as it strengthens the existing pair bond. I'm not sure if that one's been replicated, but it was an interesting study and created a lot of waves when it came out because it played into this idea of this social monogamy, monogamy hormone. But the other, the other thing is these things are very hard to measure. So certain things in the lab you can measure, but when it comes to the, these relationships or when it comes to the, the pair bond, they're a little bit trickier to measure. The last question, given some of the replication issues you mentioned, has this changed your research? Do you now have to go out of the way to recruit larger samples or maybe independently replicate some effect in a separate sample before you consider it publishable? It's definitely changed the way that I do my, do, do my research. So now compared to how research was done previously, I'm very mindful of the sorts of effect sizes or the sorts of effects that I can reliably detect with the research designs that I have. And I think very carefully about these sort of things. And this has led to the requirement to have increased sample sizes. And this is good because not only does this mean that if we get what we consider to be a statistically significant result, that we, we think this is more reliable. This also means that if we get a non-significant result, when it comes to traditional null hypothesis significance testing, a non-significant result is not very informative. It can either mean there was a null effect or it can mean the data was simply not sensitive enough. It doesn't matter how small or how large the p-value is. That's, you, there's, there's no way of knowing that. But when, it, when you have larger samples, you're better able to actually understand using, say, equivalence testing, which is part of the frequentist family of testing, or something like Bayesian hypothesis testing. But in order to do that, you need these larger samples in order to actually rule out hypotheses. So it's not just about having large enough samples to actually confirm hypotheses, but it's having large enough samples to rule out hypotheses. But I think this has been really good when it comes to study planning as well. 10, 20 years ago, the pre-registrations in general tend, tended to be quite vague. I don't think, I don't necessarily think researchers have been doing this on purpose. That's just how people thought pre-registrations were done. But those pre-registrations happened to give researchers a lot of wiggle room in terms of the types of analysis that they did. But now that we're having a, we have a, a, a better idea or a better understanding of the importance of replication and having more specific hypotheses made me think very carefully about how I actually plan my studies and how I specify my hypotheses and also thinking about ways of, okay, as well as how can I support this, how can this be potentially falsified as well? So for some of the projects that we're doing, we are actually adopting the registered reports format. We're planning to adopt the registered reports format where we actually submit our, our analysis plan and our rationale to the journal ahead of time. And the journal editor and the reviewers evaluate the research design. And if they're happy with the research design and they approve it, then they will essentially provide in principle acceptance regardless of the result, which I think is a fantastic way of reducing publication bias in literature. And it's great to see more journals have adopted the registered reports format. I think it's about 200 to 300 now, and this is growing as well. This is something that we're planning to do. But as part of that, you really have to think very carefully about what you're doing for your research and what mm -hmm. you and your upcoming plans. So traditionally, null results are seen as less publishable. But if you follow the registered reports, it doesn't matter if it's null because it's already been accepted just on the basis of its rationale. 
Exactly. And I think we're see, we've seen in a lot of different fields within psychology, for instance, that these before pre-registration, before registered reports, the majority of reported effect sizes are quite large and statistically significant. But as soon as you start doing these registered reports and detailed pre-registrations, these effects seem to vanish. So I think it's great that with oxytocin research, there's more and more registered reports. And this is something that we want to do as well. I've still managed, I've published some null results with oxytocin research. I'm very happy to publish null results because it takes knowledge for the field forward, but it's still, it can be, so it's not impossible to publish null results, but it can be more difficult. But at least with the registered reports format, research is judged on the study design and the research question, not on the significance of the result, which I think is a great way to move science forward. I really love the holistic focus of both these mechanistic and methodological attention to detail and integrating your research with this broader evolutionary theory. Yeah, it's been quite intentional. I think I really want to improve the ways that we do oxytocin research and seeing it from this field that was, there was a lot of hype and then figuring out how do we actually evaluate and understand these mixed results. I think implementing these things will help us get to the better answers for this type of stuff. Thank you very much for your time, Daniel. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to talk to you.